What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest installment of Exhaust. This is our second time trying to talk about democratic pluralism with Mr. Michael Lind, an incredible author of The New Class War, a book that had a huge impact on me when it came out. And he just gave an inaugural speech at a conference put on by Compact Magazine. So we're going to get into democratic pluralism, how it sets itself apart from some of the other governing ideologies, and maybe a little bit of what is to be done. So Michael, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, again. So let's get into this. At the beginning, you set up basically what you say are sort of three different main modes of thinking about political organization. They're liberalism, technocracy, and pluralism. So how do you see these three? Well, a liberalism, which would be called libertarianism or classical liberalism in the U.S., views society as an aggregate of individuals who are or should be united only by free voluntary contracts. What I call a technocracy envisions a society's divided between a mass and an enlightened elite, which should govern it on behalf of the public interest or the national interest or the vanguard of proletarian workers or it could, could come in religious theocratic forms, but the idea is that that you have an administrative elite which is informed by its superior wisdom and knowledge should govern and be insulated from a mass opinion. And the third category of public philosophies, and these are broad categories, I call pluralism after the European political science definition of pluralism to mean the idea that society is a community of communities. This was a view among communitarians and conservatives and among some guild socialists in the 19th and the 20th centuries. They, they've always opposed liberalism for having to atomizing a view of society, and they've been suspicious of concentrated elite power uh, and, and what nowadays is called the administrative state. So the pluralist ideal, as I mentioned, is a community of communities in which the territorial state, a term that is used in pluralist thought, reigns but does not rule outside of its core competencies, you know, like foreign policy, war, policing, taxation, enforcing basic civil rights. In areas like the economy, you have some version or another of corporatism, which really means sectoralism. It doesn't mean corrupted by corporations. It means government broker try bringing together labor to negotiate in collective bargaining and, and the results of their collective bargaining will have the force of law. It means a very respectful approach by the territorial state to transnational religious communities, to transnational or, or indigenous ethnic communities where, where they exist. So, so it's, it was consciously viewed by pluralists as diverse as English killed socialists, French solidarists like Emile Durkheim, around the turn of the century, and Catholic and, and various Protestant thinkers as an alternative to the radical individualism of liberalism and the tendencies towards authoritarianism of technocracy, both in its Marxist and non-Marxist forms. So you bring up, this is something that I have some questions about, because you bring up the New Deal and sort of the truce that gets brokered between labor and business there as sort of this element of this 
like period of pluralism and the consensus it creates in American life. And one of the questions I had about that is, you know, mostly I cover like the history of electricity in America and sort of that sort of industrial sector. So I was wondering when it comes to the new deal and we take a look at men like David Lilienthal, who oversees the TVA or Morris Cook, who runs the rural electrification administration, these were guys who were both very committed to technocratic management as well, and even authored books on it. So, and in your the new class where you bring up James Burnham, who seems to be at a certain point in his life, immediately post-Trotskyism, sort of critiquing what he sees the New Deal state as evolving into. Like, did were there contradictions within the New Deal state that undermined its pluralism in the post-Cold War era? Or how do you see that transition taking place? Well, you have to look at the New Deal coalition, which I view as essentially having three groups. One was the old Jacksonian coalition, which brought together two otherwise separate groups who just had common enemies, was a Southern and Midwestern agrarians and and small-town boosters. And they were united with the so-called white ethnic immigrant labor, European immigrant labor in, in the Northeastern industrial cities and their descendants. And they had been frozen out of basically U.S. economy, U.S. culture, U.S. politics during the period of Republican hegemony from the Civil War and Reconstruction all the way up until the New Deal. The South and West were resource colonies of the industrial Northeast and Midwest. In terms of culture, American history and, and culture was presented as that of New England writ large, right, as Mayflower and Thanksgiving and, and, you know, all of this, it, it was dominated by New Englanders who were hostile to white Southerners, to Mormons, and to Catholics. And they were also quite anti-Semitic as well, purging the Ivy League universities of Jews with quotas. So, so you had these, these outsiders, and they were joined by another group of dissident Republican progressives. Initially, most of them were Republican. Theodore like, Rose- like Rayburn, right, I think. And, and, yeah. 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 And and now the Republican progressives were overrepresented among the intelligentsia of the New Deal. So, for example, Stuart Chase, who coins the phrase the New Deal that, that FDR picked up, if you read his book, uh, he's talking about Soviet style planning. And uh, there was, it was not, it was not, wasn't communist, you're not liquidating gulags or anything, no concentration camps and, and gulags, but but basically you would have these four or five-year plans and everything would be, be set from above. And that was a major tradition among the progressives. As I said, some of, most of them with Republican, liberal, mugwump, reformer roots in the Northeast. Ultimately, that tradition failed in the New Deal. And the Jacksonian elements, the, the immigrant Catholics in the North and the Southern and Western farmers, Prevailed. So let's look at electricity, right? So the, the, the big debate in the 1900s to the 1920s wasn't so much on the financing of rural electrification. You know, we were taught the New Deal was all about the last mile problem. Well, that's very trivial. It, it was over whether individual plutocrats would own a third of the electric grid of the U.S. People like Samuel Insel, you know, who, who was kind of the Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos of electricity, you know, in much of the country. And and so you you had the progressives, capital P progressives, 
wanted either government ownership or, or a public utility regulation, but often they were nationalists. They, they were sort of centralists. The system we ended up with, largely because of agrarian influence itself, was localism. It was, it was breaking up what could have been giant national grids into locally owned grids, particularly in my part of the country. I get, I'm in Austin, Texas. I get my electricity from the city of Austin itself. Mm-hmm. I used an electric utility. Yeah, you guys have some of the biggest and most co-ops in the country because of that. Yeah, then, then you go west of Austin. It's the Lower Colorado River Authority, which was the biggest co-op outside of the A, the Tennessee Valley Authority. And it's set up as a co-op. It's owned by farmers and ranchers to provide electricity from dams, which were built with federal state capitalist aid. But so it, it's kind of a third way between capitalism and statism. And if you, you look at the New Deal and labor relations, ultimately, the unions prevailed over the, the rather paternalistic progressives. So Frances Perkins, who was FDR's first secretary of labor, first female secretary of labor, was very much a top-down progressive reformer. She famously said, I would rather pass a law than organize a union. And she just thought the unions, they, they weren't terribly educated you know, and they didn't know what was best for them, and, and they could be corrupt, all of which was true in some ways. But, but the system that eventually emerged was not based on wise experts in Washington, you know, drafting laws. And to the extent that that did happen, as in the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which set the minimum wage, to this day, it governed hours of work and overtime laws and so on. This was not what the unions wanted. They wanted the ability to negotiate those things with, and it was when that fell through with the collapse of the National Recovery Administration in the middle of the 30s. At that point, Frances Perkins and her her allies, including Robert Wagner, New York Senator, they kind of slapped together this one-size-fits-all program, which is better than nothing, but the alternative system, in my view, and I argue this in, in my next book, entitled Hell to Pay, about labor. We've had a more European system in which, until recently, European countries did not have minimum wages. It always shocks people on the center left. Yeah, it always does. Weren't, they didn't want minimum wages mm-hmm. because the unions feared that a minimum wage would be a maximum wage. So in every unionized industry, the unions rejected the government setting a minimum wage That was what they did. That was what you did in collective bargaining. And the only areas in which there were what we would call minimum wages were in the so-called sweated industry, where you could not organize the workers. Mm. They were part-time. The classic sweated trade was piecework sewing by women in their homes. You would have the vendor drop-off cloth. Yeah, just way too difficult. lace, Lace work. Right. Right. Way too decentralized, way too yeah. piecemeal to ever sort of bring together. Yeah. And so Winston Churchill, as a young liberal MP in 1909, introduced the first, it was called trade board, that we're now called wage boards. And this is a system in which the government just appoints a commission of representatives of labor business and you know, maybe government and consumers just to set the wages and hours in a particular field. But it was only in the 1990s and 2000s, as organized labor declined, not as much as it has in the US, but it declined in Europe, that Britain and Germany adopted minimum wage laws for the first time. 
So let me ask you this, like, I'm very interested in the idea of sectoral bargaining. You bring it up in this talk, you talk about it at length in your book as a solution. I mean, obviously, you know, we're at what, 6% like unionization in terms of labor. So we've got a long way to go. But my major question is, does this require constitutional reworking in your mind? Like, how would you envision this as sort of like a governmental setup? Do we just need a bureau or what? Well, I think the Constitution at this point is a blank slate that you can write anything on. I mean, we have presidents waging wars on behalf of countries that we have no alliances with without congressional authorizations of war. You know, we, we have conservative and, and, and liberal presidents basically legislating by fiat through executive order. That's unknown to the U.S. Constitution. Most of our international agreements are not treaties ratified by the Senate. They're just unilateral elect presidential agreements. So, so, so we can do whatever we want, <laughs> basically. Uh, <laughs> They've cleared the know, way for you know, us, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the Supreme Court, you know, makes laws. So, so you know, either you're a results person or you're a process person. So I'm kind of a results person. Uh, Fair enough. You can figure out how to make it legal and constitutional if you want to. I, I think we have to take, we have to take this idea of sectoralism seriously in both economic growth and labor relations. Now, these are two subjects that are separate in discussions in the US. And typically we think, well, there's gotta be a one size fits all model for economic growth. And it will be supply side tax cuts or it will be public investment or you know, you name it, industrial policy. And then on the other hand, there should be one single workforce-wide set of standards and hours and, and wage wages and arbitration rules and, and that sort of thing. And my argument, which I, I developed in my forthcoming book, Hell to Pay, is that, that it was kind of a fluke of history in the U.S., that these things are separate. It's because the industrial policy of the U.S., and we had a very successful industrial policy from the Civil War onwards, and it was continued by the New Deal and new forms. This was essentially undertaken by business and government without consulting labor, right? They just, they just did it. Sometimes they did it at the expense of labor in the railroad era, where, where government and business teamed up against workers. At the same time, labor in America kind of came along and found these pre-existing giant industrial corporations, and said, okay, we want a piece of the action. We want to share profits and be treated decently, but, but it, which just wasn't part of the mentality of American labor, that you're thinking about market shares abroad, and, you know, technology and things like that, right? It's just the deal was, you know, you, you guys run the corporation and then we just want our paychecks and, you know, and our nice benefits. And, and I argue that in, we need to reindustrialize the U.S. to some extent. And we need to raise wages. But you can't do that on a one-size-fits-all model. So the, the traded sector of the economy, which is the most important because it has access to global markets and, and the greatest potential for growth, these, this is manufacturing mainly, but also professional services that you can sell to global markets and customers. And oil and gas, right, as a sector as well. Oil, oil and gas. However, I say this as a Texan, and I'm actually a very tiny Texas oil a few hundred dollars a year from a very tiny. <laughs> but I, but I am. You, you want to, your traded sector to concentrate on the high value added 
things mm-hmm. face. Not because if you only have traded resources, then you, you get what's known as the resource curse, right? You know, you don't. Right. Okay. The ground, you live and you die have, by its success. Yeah. yeah. But you also, you have no incentive if you're the government to educate your people, mm. to promote R&D or anything, right? You just take it out of the ground and put it on a train or in a pipe or a truck to the port. So, so you know, I'm, I'm, you know, mineral exports are important, but you want to combine that. Mm-hmm. The manufacturing exports in particular. Now, most people in an advanced industrial society will work in non-traded domestic service sector. It's non-traded because their jobs can't be offshored to other countries with lower wages and standards. It's service because machines are doing most of the production and harvesting and mining and drilling, which is a good thing. You know, it, it, it's bizarre for me, who was raised in the New Deal liberal era, to find this anti-growth, anti-technological mentality on, on the left of, of center. This is yeah, pretty bizarre, right? I mean, that's really, well, to, me, weird. to me, like we've been saying this on the show a lot, is that all my life I heard about the, the long 60s. But what I've realized is that, especially when looking at this degrowth, like decentralized, Amory Lovins type stuff, which has restructured our electricity system eventually, that it's we live in the long 70s. And that's what it looks like now. No, I, I was in high school in the 1970s. And, you know, at that point, it was Kennedy Johnson Democrats who were in favor of rockets and electricity and nuclear power and space travel and and those went hand in hand with civil rights and dismantling the old cotton-based plantation economy. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I, went, I went and saw Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Have you ever heard of this? This was no. a pseudo-Tolkien cartoon movie. It was an animated movie in the 1970s. Very well done. But the whole plot is this wizard who lives in a mushroom and his elfin friends overthrow this evil technological society is trying to enslave the world, right? And, and I was a teenager. I was horrified. I thought, it's like, <laughs> logical society. It's like, this is, this is the hippie manifesto, right? You live in a mushroom, smoke weed. And, and then about a year or two later, there was the much more culturally consequential premiere of Star Wars, which left an even more indelible scar on my adolescent psyche, because I'm thinking, wait a second. The Galactic Empire with the, all of the technology is the bad guys. And so who are the good guys? Hereditary monarchs, princes and princesses, right? Right. And wizards, right? I mean, it's just like Ralph Bakshi. So yeah. no, the, the turning point really, I remember it. It, it, was, it was during the Carter years. Yes, absolutely. Purpa, I think, is like a watershed moment for the U.S. economy in a lot of ways. It's a big hinge point. A lot of the decisions that get made in the latter half of the 70s are extremely, I think, especially for the industrial sector, highly consequential. But, but it, was, it, was a big, it was a big cultural shift. You had uh, this fellow, Yule Gibbons, on TV. He had an advertising. He was for organic farming. Mm-hmm. Organic farming is like wilderness foraging. So his famous TV ad that all the kids mocked in school was, have you ever eaten a pie 